When you hear the term corporate governance, you might not think it has a direct impact on you. But as we'll learn today, good governance has the power to affect us all in one way or another. To help us understand this, I'll be sitting down with Catherine McCall, the Executive Director at Canadian Coalition for Good Governance, or CCGG. After this episode, you'll learn what governance means today, particularly good governance, the opportunities at our fingertips to improve governance across Canada, the value of collective power and how that puts Canada on the global stage, and finally, best practices for leaders who are looking to improve their approach to ESG. Enjoy the episode. Catherine, welcome to Contributors. Thank you very much for having me here. Why don't we start with uh, your role? Can you tell us a little bit about your journey at the Canadian Coalition for Good Governance, or CCGG? CCGG, yes. A C2G2, which I like the best, because it's like <laughs> it's like Star Wars. I like that too. I, yeah. Well, I've been involved in corporate governance for many years, and I've always admired uh, CCGG and the work that they did, and very much was in favor of their mission, overall mission of improving governance in, in Canada, Canadian public companies. So I was very thrilled when I had the opportunity to start working there. And I started as the director of policy development. Then about three years ago, I became their executive director. Can you tell us a little bit more about that overall mission and, and why do you think that the work that CCGG does is important in terms of Canada's future? Sure. Uh, to put it very succinctly, the mission is to improve corporate governance at Canadian public companies to help ensure that those companies are run in, in the best interest of the, the corporation and the corporation's stakeholders and not in the interest of management and the board. Uh, we're also committed, and it's a very uh, large part of our work over the past several years, to assisting institutional investors like CAT in meeting their stewardship responsibilities and the fulfilling the fiduciary obligations that they have to manage the assets under their care on behalf of the ultimate beneficiaries and, and clients. And our members are pension funds like CATS, other, other large pension funds, small pension funds, asset managers, mutual funds. And so their ultimate beneficiaries are the uh, Canadians that receive a pension plan or will receive a pension plan who own mutual funds or saving for retirement or their kids' education, anyone who's going to hoping to receive CPP or is receiving PPB. So in other words, it's ordinary Canadians, a majority of Canadians. And the liabilities of our members to meet the retirement educational needs of our, our Canadians, um, they stretch forward for decades. So institutional shareholders have got to manage the assets under their care with the intention of creating long-term sustainable value in the companies in their portfolios so that they can fund these liabilities. So CCGG is important because it's assisting institutional investors in meeting the needs of Canadians, uh, both now and in the future for financial security. That's a great overview. I think one of the things that I thought was insightful. As I was preparing to meet with you, I was looking up and trying to learn more about CCGG. And for me, it became real when I realized corporate governance isn't this kind of esoteric concept. It's really about how so many public organizations are run. And as you know, regular Canadians, we are invested in Canada Pension Plan, for example. So Corporate governance is something that impacts us very directly as shareholders in so many Canadian organizations via CPPIB. 
Absolutely. That's uh, fundamentally important and is the reason I find this work so important and fascinating, really. Let's talk a little bit about good governance. So good governance is in your name. That is the GG of CCGG. What does that mean? What is good governance? It means that public uh, corporations are managed in a way so as to create the long-term sustainable value in the best interests of the corporation and all of its stakeholders, not in the interests of management and the board. And that you have the structures and processes in place to support an independent board and committees that are going to enable this independent uh, oversight to occur. On the stewardship side, it means that institutional investors are monitoring and engaging with the companies in their portfolios. They need to ensure that clients' and beneficiaries' interests are being looked after. And part of this is ensuring that the board, of course, is overseeing all material risks and opportunities that can impact the long-term value of the company. And importantly, we now know that social and environmental factors can have a material financial impact on the corporation. And we can see that clearly with the pandemic, which was a virus, not a financial matter. But we saw the financial devastation that it wrought, including, you know, as as well as the individual and social, social devastation. So how the companies responded to the pandemic, as well as how they respond to other ENS matters, is a matter of uh, good governance. And I would end by saying that integrating ENS matters means necessarily that the interests of all stakeholders and not just shareholders are important. So they must be taken into account. So that's employees, customers, the community, suppliers, the environment. What is ENS? Oh, ENS is environmental and social, um, and it's added to the governance to get ESG. And it's such a common term now that you tend to forget that, you know, it needs to be broken up. But ENS, ESG means environmental social governance. Historically, governance was what we focused on. And in recent, I don't know, oh, maybe the last 10 years, it's, you know, beginning to realize the importance of the environmental and social uh, integration that was necessary for good governance to, to be, a, to be a, a fact. Absolutely. It's interesting. On contributors, our guests often talk about the environmental and social issues. And that is so much of what Canadian business leaders are focused on now to ensure the, the long-term prosperity of Canada. But the G is something that comes up rarely. And that, that's why we're so pleased that you decided to be on the show because it's it's the the third element that we rarely talk about. That's so interesting because for us, it's the fundamental element. And we actually approach environmental and social matters through a governance lens, which means that we are not looking at it through a, a sort of a corporate social responsibility or values lens, but more a matter of how these factors, the ENS factors, can have a financial impact and, mate- and materially affect the long-term value of a company. So the governance is sort of the supersedes uh, the ENS to the extent that we're looking at it through from the perspective of shareholders elect the board, boards oversee risks, and those risks include environmental and social. So that's the that's the perspective we come right. at it. But we actually look at governance as being fundamental because you can't actually have an impact on the E and the S unless the proper uh, governance uh, structures are in place. That makes perfect sense. Let, let's bring in a real-world example here. So many of our listeners would be familiar with the recent struggle for leadership of Rogers 
Can you tell our, our listeners, those that don't know, what happened at Rogers and, and what does that have to do with governance? What happened at Rogers was the ability, I guess, the, the I'm going to say the shock at the sort of people realizing that the, the, it was a situation where the controlling shareholders, the Rogers family, who own less than 30% of the stock, a control over almost 98% of the votes. So there's a separation of votes and, and equity contribution. And that meant that the board, that the controlling shareholder who controlled the board could appoint whoever they wanted to the board, which is sort of opposed to what our fundamental understanding of good governance is, that there is a one share, one vote, a relationship between your equity contribution and your voting rights. And that stands to make, that makes sense because if there's going to be an element of fairness in the capital public capital markets, then there should be a princi- principle of fairness with respect to the capital that's been contributed and the voting and the power that you exert in the corporation. But what mattered to us was that it was fundamentally a governance issue because it was a matter of accountability and, and violating that principle of accountability where the person that owns that owns the shares or the people or the shareholders that own the shares have a right to elect directors, and those directors are therefore accountable to shareholders. So that breaks that principle. So on this topic specifically, what is your view? Should it be one share, one vote? My answer to that would be you can get the benefits of both worlds. You can have the one, the uh, multiple, multiple class multiple voting shares if you attach certain conditions to the existence of those shares. So one of the main or the most important would be a sunset clause so that the uh, dual class structure doesn't uh, exist in perpetuity. After a certain number of years, it comes up to shareholders for a vote or it just dissolves. And that way you can reintroduce the principle of accountability so that um, shareholders can decide whether they want to carry on this structure. And the important fact here is that things change. Let's talk a little bit about the ownership of corporate governance. I've always found this to be a, a bit of a, a, a paradox. In, in terms of corporate structure, it's really clear that the CEO is ultimately accountable for running the company. The CEO is answerable to the board. The board is elected by the shareholders. So the accountabilities are all really clear. I struggle personally with in this model, who owns corporate governance? So who is responsible for making sure that the governance structure is working well? What are your thoughts on that? It's a group effort. It's a it's a triad of interests or rights and responsibilities, and it's supposed to function as that kind of um, multi, multi-unit or, or, or a group. And if it's working properly, that it, it should. As you said, the CEO manages uh, oversees management. The board oversees the CEO, and the shareholders are supposed to elect the directors. So that's a certain amount of oversight. And both of them are both management and the CEO are supposed to work in the best interests of the corporation. That's the tying. That's you know, which is interesting because shareholders do not have an obligation, a fiduciary obligation, to uh, look after the best interests of the corporation. They can look after their own interests. So it's a kind. That's an interesting kind of split there. But I think that the only way our, our, under our laws, our structure works is if all if the triad is actually all doing their their part, and that part of shareholders involve in, involves the stewardship responsibilities that they have. Absolutely. Can you speak a little bit to the difference between shareholders and stakeholders? Mm-hmm. Under Canadian law, 
under both statutory law and common law, directors have an obligation to the best interest of the corporation. But under that best interest overview, they may take into account the interests of stakeholders, other other persons with an interest in the corporation. And that includes, obviously, shareholders because they've given their financial capital to the organization. But it also includes human capital, physical capital, other other forms of other persons that have given other kinds of capital to the organization. So employees and suppliers, the environment, the community, because you can't operate a company without the physical capital of the environment. It's one way of looking at it. I think that the best way to look at it uh, is from, in, in my perspective, from the, a lo- the perspective of our members, of institutional investors like CAT, which is the need to take a very long-term perspective on creating value. And if you look at the company from that perspective, you could not possibly create long-term value if you didn't take the interests of these other stakeholders into account. This show is called Contributors, and, and what we really look to do here is to talk about organizations that are contributing to the long-term welfare and prosperity of Canada. How do you see that CCGG is doing that? We do that through the collective action of our institutional investor members. We have so much power as a group, as a collective, than we would, our members would individually, no matter how large the the pension fund, even CPPIB in the case, and, you know, they're they're on their own. They're not going to be able to accomplish as much. And we do that through, we have three main streams of activity. The first is policy development. So we, we release and publish policies on um, every many, many aspects of uh, corporate governance, including diversity, including uh, disclosure, uh, uh, say on pay, majority vote. We have, they're all available on our website, but we have a, an extensive policy library, you could call it. And the second uh, activity that we we pursue is uh, engaging with public policymakers and regulators to try and uh, introduce the the um, interests or the perspective of institutional investors into the regulatory framework within within which they operate. And this is incredibly important, and we do have an impact. We know that we we made uh, like I think twenty submissions in the last eighteen months to not only federal regulators and the securities commissions, but provincial to the SEC in the U.S., even one to in Australia. So we have a, a, a very, very strong policy advocacy base. And the third way is our engagement program, our board engagement program. And when, in that program, we meet with independent directors of Canadian public companies, typically large, larger companies on the composite index. And we communicate, the hope is to open a dialogue between these issuers' boards, and we don't talk to management because we're talking to the, through the governance lens and what's important in, from that perspective and those ESG issues. We talk to independent directors, open a line of communication between them and investors, and they're meeting with a huge portion of their investing popul- uh, base when they meet with CCGG. Typically, um, when we meet with a, a board, our members own between 10 and 30% of the of the shares. So it's a significant um, amount. And we're, we try and advance um, ESG through that, through that engagement program. And that is often the most valuable um, offering for our members, especially smaller ones that may not have their own internal engagement programs. But through, so we, we've kind of hit, um, you know, we contribute to good governance, I would say, in, in these three 
very different but very related ways because we talk to our in these engagement programs we're talking to directors about the policies that we've developed that you know our good good governance perspective is based on we talk we try and have those reflected in regulatory regulatory um, uh, proposals and framework as well can you give us an example of a regulatory change that has been made through that collective action yes I can. <laughs> Uh, and not to, and it's it's not in isolation. Uh, one of the the um, isolation from this social uh, movements and, and social advances, but gender diversity has moved, depending on your view, tremendously, or maybe not so much. But there are a lot. Uh, there's a lot higher level of women reflected in board composition than there was since, oh, I guess, 2014 or 15. I think, and investors have made a concerted effort to make that happen. It is a result of changing social attitudes as well. Investors just didn't decide to do this out of nowhere, but recognizing that it does impact on the quality of boards and through that on the creation of value and independent thinking and a lot and risk risk aversion, a lot of important issues for with respect to governance. The um, amount of work that we've put into developing our own policy and Inter- interacting with policy make regulators is is quite significant, and I think you can see, and not just CCGG, of course, a lot, many investors have have taken the same path, and there, as I said, the broader social movement. But that has had an impact, so we can now see that there is more, and it's beginning to now. We're turning our focus quite rightly to underrepresentation in groups besides gender. So that's that's the newest focus, and. And there you can see that reflected in the Canada Business Corporations Act was amended to include those underrepresented groups in its disclosure requirements. That's great. I think that's also a place where the system is working. Like if I think about the regular people that that own shares in, in the organizations you would represent. So CAT has members in the Ontario colleges, as well as private businesses. You know, obviously the teacher's pension plan represents regular teachers. Uh, Omer's represents municipal workers. And I think generally these are people who would believe that boards should be representative of the larger populations and they should include uh, women and they should include diverse populations. So this is the kind of common sense change that I think not only makes good business sense, but reflects what, what, uh, shareholders would believe it should happen. Absolutely. And I like the way you, you said it, that it's it's working as it should, because the money should be moved in ways that the owners of that money uh, believe are appropriate. As Catherine explained, companies and their leaders need to operate with the best interest of the corporation in mind. And in recent years, that's grown to include environmental and sustainability considerations. However, Catherine will argue that the importance doesn't end there. There's a shift that's become very real during the pandemic when companies needed to operate within unprecedented circumstances. Let's hear what Catherine had to say about the current challenges and opportunities facing Canada and how good governance can help us prevail. Are there any challenges or barriers that you see as standing in the way of improved governance for Canada? I think the most direct or tangible 
issue that we're confronting now, and this is got this is with respect to addressing climate change, but also with diversity to uh, to a different degree, and that is the need for greater data transparency from the issuers from the corporate because. Climate change, as as you know, is a hugely complex uh, matter. We, we the science is still evolving. People don't even understand how to measure it in certain ways and and how to measure certain risks like transition risks. And it, it's it's extremely complicated. But we can't make any headway unless we understand what's actually happening. So the not having the data there to work with to be able to to have data that's consistent comparable among peers and that you can track uh, progress is is very challenging. And then with diversity, there's issues about disclosure. I mean, how do you address underrepresentation? Do you have a tick box? So 3% of this group, you know, 2% of that group, is that really what you want? And there's the that goes along with data disclosure about do people really want to disclose that? I mean, in certain countries in Europe, it's illegal to ask people about their ethnic um, background. Uh, so it, those are all very complicated data-related issues. What are some of the global best practices around governance that you're inspired by? Oh, that's that's a good question too. I would say uh, related to data collection, I think in, in the EU, they have a an approach to uh, collecting data about ESG matters, environmental, social, and governance matters that looks at it through a different lens than we do, something they call, not a different, an additional lens, a double materiality lens. So here we're in North America and the UK and Anglo-American world. We we're, we're tend to be looking at it as the impact, and it's the way I would describe it, the impact of ESG matters on financial wealth and health, well-being of the company. So it's a kind of how are these external matters impacting the company? Um, looking outwards, so sort of say, well, how is that company impacting the environment and society? Sort of in a more outward direction, if you include that aspect, it's refer- being referred to as double materiality. And they're they're trying to grapple with that, well, we're still grappling with the one-way direction. Now, that's not to say that, you know, we necessarily should go the other way, but there's a lot more thinking going into this in Europe. A lot, they're, they're out of the gate ahead of us. They've made more progress. And I think we're in the position of really having to play catch-up to a certain extent. And that's, I worry about um, people that say we're going too fast. You know, we're a resource-based economy. We have to, we have to make sure that you know, we don't do things that will, that upsets, you know, certain industries when we have to acknowledge and understand what's here and not, not to ignore those industries, but this is where we are. And I think we need to kind of accept that and, and catch up. What do you think Canada does well around governance? We are very good in comparison to globally, I would say, in creating through sort of market forces the best pra- sense of best practices rather than regulatory prescriptive from the, the top-down model. So what we think of as best practices in Canada and has been incorporated into regulation and basically evolved through the market and issuers and investors saying this is what we want to see. So majority voting, splitting the chair and the CEO uh, independent boards; those are all, and they they have been ref- reflected, as I say, in regulation, but they weren't imposed. And I think that externally, not well, some of them have been, but maybe pushing them a little bit. But I think what that means is that there's there's 
great buy-in from the market participants when when the regulation does come to a certain extent. So I think we're very strong in that. And we have, you know, we have in, in the context of North America, you know, we are we're way ahead of the U.S. in terms of splitting the CEO and chair, which is a fundamental governance issue. You can't have the person that's overseeing the CEO be the CEO. So we, um, yeah, so we're that in our majority voting and, and a number of things that that we are, we have been good at. And I think that was, that is the general uh, market sent, best practices in, in um, voluntary basis that move those forward. Yeah, I think that makes sense. Looking at this from the perspective of, Canadian employers. I'm a Canadian employer. How can governance positively impact my business? Oh, I think by taking the perspective in your in your your outlook on on your business and strategy that all stakeholders are important. So you don't just focus on the bottom line, you focus on your employees, on your own customers. Um you have to look at the company as a collection of these stakeholders as a whole. And of course, employees are hugely important. So you have to look at um, you know, the health and safety and well-being of your employees is, is so important, as we saw during the pandemic, to the health of the company itself. Um, you need to look have, have um, developed um, uh, training programs and engage, employee engagement, trying to make sure that employees are engaged and have a stake in the company. The culture has to reflect values that they can find acceptable with diversity and inclusion. So I think that what I would suggest, say is that the, the employers should look at employees as a contributors of capital, uh, human capital, shareholders, financial capital. But the idea that if for the company to, to do well, all of the stakeholders have to do well. So it's interesting. You you incorporate employees into to governance in a way that I don't think I've ever considered before. It, you almost seem to think of employees as a key element of governance. Can you can you tell us a little bit more of the, about that? They are, and the way that you can get there to that position, I think, is by taking a long-term perspective. And, you know, we have to acknowledge that under our corporate governance system in the law, shareholders are the only stakeholders that have a legal accountability mechanism through their ability to elect directors. Um, And that's a fact. And a lot of, so you could call a shareholders maybe the first among equals is one way of looking at it. And it's not, it doesn't have to be that way. I mean, in Germany, they have employee representations on boards, you know, that uh, or groups working, uh, workers groups. So there's other ways. But currently that in our, in our governance and legal structure, it's only shareholders. So if you want to incorporate them, you employees and giving them the, the incredible position that they should have in company structure, um, you look at the perspective of the long-term shareholders perspective and how, you, how do you create value, sustainable value. And one of the most important parts of that creating value is human capital. Like now, I think uh, 90%, you read this figure that 90% of the, the value on, on uh, companies on the indexes these days is, is intangibles. You know, a huge part of that is people. So, If employee relations is a governance issue, which I think you've convinced me, I think that makes a lot of sense. Is the great resignation a governance threat? That's a really good question. I'd have to, my gut instinct is to say, yes, it is. And now I have to kind of back up and figure out 
how why why do I say that? And I think I think it is because if you don't have the employees, you don't have a company and you can't you can't create value for anybody. So if people are just saying we don't want to play anymore, then you're in trouble. What are the changes that you hope to see around governance in the next five to 10 years? I would like to see in a very, this is a very granular way, I would like to see dual class share structures. We're all familiar with, you know, what happened at Rogers recently. And I would like to see that there be conditions attached to those structures so they can continue indefinitely uh, and some of the negatives associated with those and the unfairness and lack of accountability can be handled by attaching things like sunset uh, uh, provisions and coattails. That would be a strictly governance issue. Um, other than that, I would like to see uh, ES, ENS, environmental and social issues continue to be further integrated, both from the investor's perspective and on the issuer's management's and the board's perspective. So they really are, are, are looked at as a, as a whole. In preparation for meeting with you today, I talked to a couple of people that have worked with you at CCGG. And my question to them was, what is Catherine's secret sauce? What is the thing that she is particularly good at that other leaders could, could learn from? And the answer I got was, Catherine is particularly adept at looking globally and thinking globally in terms of governance best practices and uh, emerging trends, and then finding a way to bring them back and implement them within Canada. So uh, how, how do you do that? I do that by looking at the fundamental theory underlying. I mean, we've talked quite a bit about, you've asked some good questions about you know, what is good governance and thinking about the theory underlying what we do and why we do it and recognizing that those are global issues. I mean, it is a global economy and the markets certainly are global and there there are jurisdictional regional issues. But I think looking at uh, it as a whole and seeing the similarities um, along with the differences is is allows you to learn from other other countries and what's happening around the world and uh, give, opens up the possibilities, I think, more. So how can our listeners learn more about CCGG? Very, very simply, our, we have a great website. We have a website that's got all our policies on it, all our regulatory submissions, talks about what we do. If you're an institutional investor, it shows you how to endorse, tells you how to endorse our stewardship principles, which are incredibly important. But our website is a really good collection of who we are and what we do. Perfect. Thank you so much for being on the show today. Thank you. My pleasure. After my conversation with Catherine, I'll be taking away a few insights about good governance in Canada. First, taking into account the interests of all corporate stakeholders is not just the right thing to do because it's the law. It's also simply the better option for everyone involved within a corporation. Human capital is one of the most valuable assets of any company. So initiatives that benefit employees ultimately benefit all stakeholders. Second, just as corporations should be treated as a united front, we need to stop viewing others in the world as separate from us. What benefits one benefits all. So instead of thinking about how we can improve governance in Canada, we should perhaps be taking a broader global approach. Finally, Catherine left us with a reminder to avoid complacency at all costs. By igniting more conversations, education, 
and analysis about the challenges we face today, we can create a better future together. Thank you for joining us today on Contributors. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts. And tune in for our next episode on April 6th.